Hello, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmerdi. Welcome to Plan B, the podcast from Upstream. Upstream talks about social determinants of health. And in this particular health crisis, we're talking about the different aspects of COVID-19. If you want to get in touch with Upstream uh, and um, Trish Hennessy, who runs the place, it's quite simple. Just go to thinkupstream.net and you will find everything you need to know. Also, the auspices of the Government of Canada allow us to do this. Today, I want to talk about the health aspects of COVID-19. We've talked about quite a few of the different facets of this flawed diamond that is this virus and all of the opportunities and crises that are embedded in it. Uh, And there's been a lot of myth myth information and information that has been coming out in terms of health. And there's also the kinds of approaches that we are taking, that different countries are taking, and the virus itself and the, the chase to find the vaccine. So there's lots of different things to talk about, and we'll be talking about them with somebody who's well qualified to do just that. He is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail newspaper, and Andre Picard joins me now. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to start... I guess I really wanted to start at our approach here in Canada. What would you say about the way we have gone about our business when it comes to COVID-19? I think Canada has been a bit slow. So we're a little slow off the mark. We're very incremental. We don't take risks. So, you know, in retrospect, we should have acted a lot more quickly, but it's easy to say that. Uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I think we saw sort of the Canadian uh, culture or Canadian political approach uh, bear out for better or worse as we do things cautiously. So in the beginning, I do remember there being interviews in the media where health specialists were saying, we have zero to worry about. It's one of those things that's over there. It's not over here. Why did we misunderstand that? Well, I think there are health threats like this that come up all the time. We forget that. People who don't follow public health stuff like I do, you forget that. There's all these warnings, dire warnings happen all the time, every time a new bug comes around, a new flu, and most of them don't bear out. So most of the time it's true. We don't have a lot to worry about. Uh, This uh, coronavirus at the outset was very confined to China. Uh, People poured in a lot of resources to China to make sure it didn't get out, and it seemed to be working. Uh, it didn't work. So we had to deal with this. So give me the personality of this virus, of this coronavirus. What is it about this one? Well, I think, uh, how would I put it? I think it's very sneaky. So, you know, just seem to be another coronavirus. Coronaviruses are what gives us colds. So it didn't seem that big a deal. Uh, It had a similar trajectory to SARS. Uh, that we saw a few, you know, 15 years ago. So we really thought that we could rein it in. This will be like SARS. There'll be a little burst of death. Uh, It'll spread a bit, but then we'll get it under control. But it seemed to be sort of halfway between a flu and SARS. So it's less deadly, but spread much more easily. So it had sort of, you know, in the viral world, you have viruses that are really, really deadly, like Ebola, that spread really, really easily. And they kill people and then they kind of die off because they don't have a host. And then you have the flu, which infects a lot of people. Most of them don't get sick. And, you know, we kind of live with it. 
And the worst thing is the in-between, which is what we have now, is it's pretty, you know, it spreads pretty easily and it's fairly deadly. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds, this medium type virus. You know, it's an odd thing, though, because it, it, it does spread very easily. And yet, from what I've understood from health professionals, it also dies very easily. Soap and water, alcohol, you know, sanitizers, you got a pretty good chance of killing this thing if you're on it. Am, am I right about that? Yeah, viruses in general are pretty fragile. So they're not, uh, they don't really last. They don't, uh, you know, grab onto you. It's not an AIDS that's going to be with you forever. Uh, and it's not, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that infectious. Uh, the measles, for example, is really, really infectious. You can be in the same room as someone and, you know, you're almost certain to get it if you're not vaccinated. This is kind of, you've got a good chance of getting it if somebody coughs on you, but you're not going to, you know, it just doesn't linger in the air or anything and it doesn't live forever on surfaces. So it's, it should be something we can handle. At this point in time, it looks like we're doing the right thing. The isolation, this physical distancing that we're involved with, what they call social distancing. But different countries are taking different approaches. Why are we seeing so many different approaches to the same virus? I think we're seeing different approaches because we just don't know what to do. And the other part of it is we have different cultures. So it's really a lot of people say, oh, we should just do exactly like Taiwan and Singapore. But we have a very, very different culture. It's not easy to, to have the same rules in Canada as in countries with a different culture, more authoritarian, much more obedient of the law. You know, we're kind of a liberal democracy. We kind of don't like to be told to do things, et cetera. So all that, all that comes into play. So does that get amplified in a highly individualistic nation like the United States? Well, I think the answer to that is in their numbers, right? Uh, we have in today, in yesterday and today in the U.S., mass protests of people protesting, being told to stay home. It's almost an absurdity, but it really is. It's almost a, a portrait of America in, in, in one place. People holding up signs, you know, don't tell me to stay home and then getting together by the thousands. So, Yeah, Canadians aren't like that. No, we will grumble and say at home. <laughs> That's right. Quietly and politely. We'll watch Blue Jays reruns and yeah. <laughs> get bitter over ice cream. You know, it, it's such a strange thing because the other part of this is there's, if we do this right, there'll be a whole bunch of people who'll say, well, you see, it was no big deal, right? Right. And that's, I said that, I think I wrote that, I wrote my first column about this, I think, four months ago. That was one of the first things, as I said, the ideal outcome for me would be that people can say in six months, oh, you're such a, a loser. You said this was going to be a big deal, and it's not. That, right. I'd love to hear that from people. Yeah. Uh, sadly, I don't think we're going to hear that. We find uh, at this point that it's also shining light into dark corners of public health, having this uh, COVID-19. What, what, what do you think we're learning and what do you think we need to do better? Well, how many hours do we have? <laughs> no, I, think it, I think it's teaching us some really important lessons. One, uh, one that we get taught over and over again is that we neglect public health, right? We have this really predictable way of doing things. A uh, crisis comes along, we spend a massive amount of money, uh, 
and we care about public health for a few months, then we become neglectful, and then we impose these massive cuts on public health, which Ontario did, for example, about six months ago, and then we pay the price for it. And the pattern repeats itself time and time again, and we never seem to learn. So that's a big one. That the import, you know, it's really draw, driven home the importance of public health and being uh, ready for crises before they come. And the second one, I think, is uh, the tragedy that it's really exposed is the tragedy of long term care and how we uh, treat our elders with such contempt and how we uh, warehouse them. And again, we've created this ideal situation for uh, a virus like this to kill people. Uh, we've created, you know, this is the best place for it to do its damage. And we've had this system for 40 or 50 years and the chickens are coming home to roost now, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes in my other life do workshops with people about aging and saging mm -hmm. and turning, you know, what is commodified as seniors looking for discounts, foraging for discounts at shoppers. Uh, into elders who cultivate wisdom and use it in their lives and, and help other people with mentorship and things like that. Do you think there's any chance we learn those kinds of lessons here? Or do we just say, well, you know, we need better PSWs and we need, you know, a little more money in the system, but keep them in the warehouse? Well, I think if anything good comes out of this, it will be that we really fundamentally rethink how people live in their so-called golden years. So people are living longer. I think we have to figure out how, how they should live. And I think I've thought this for a long time. I think they should live in the community as much as possible. Uh, we need to look to countries like I'm a big fan of Denmark. Denmark mm -hmm. is a, an older society than us. It's embraced this notion of keep people at home as long as possible. When they need to be, when they need institutional care, it's going to be in a home-like setting. So if you go to Denmark, you go down the street, family home, family home, seniors residence, family home, you can't tell them apart. Yeah, they have a beautiful idea going there where they have sometimes, let's say there's five or six women who are older and living in a house that's been broken into uh, apartments, but there's common space for them. And they tend to situate them within a couple of blocks of a high street so that they can, there's a walkability to their lives. And when you think of suburban aging, we don't have that. If you lose your driver's license and live in suburban Canada, which is two thirds of Canadians, you've got a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have these, like everything in healthcare, uh, every problem we have is structural and administrative. We don't really have medical problems. You know, we've medicalized aging instead of changing society to make aging more bearable. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of infrastructure that already was in place. It seems as long as we don't get into very high numbers that the system is holding. Am I right on that? The medical system is holding. So the real danger, the thing we feared the most was uh, being overwhelmed in intensive care, running out of uh, ventilators. That happened in Italy, uh, happened in Spain. It doesn't look like it's going to happen in Canada, Knockwood. But, you know, that that's the good news. How long do you think we're going to be doing this? Well, we're going to be doing some form of social distancing for a long time. I think months, at the very least, probably years. Uh, the, the new normal is going to be very different from the old normal until we have a vaccine because this is a, it's a novel virus. It means that no one has immunity to it. It means we're all eventually going to get it or 
could get it unless we find a way of preventing that. And the only way to prevent it practically in the long term is a vaccine. So the world is racing towards trying to do something about that. And people obviously want it to be done. Does it matter that we have so many people in the world working on this? Will it accelerate it? Or is it a question of clinical and human trials and making sure you don't put a vaccine out there that ends up killing more people than it saves? I think more people is good. And we have this, you know, another good thing. You want to talk about opportunities. One Another good thing that's come out of this is unprecedented cooperation in science. So we have these probably 40, 50 groups around the world working on vaccines, but they're not doing it in secret. That's always been the way of science. Keep it secret mm-hmm. until I can publish. Everyone's putting their stuff out there, open science. They're learning from each other, uh, stealing from each other in quotes uh, to accelerate this. And, and that's great. I think it's probably going to be the, if we're able to create a vaccine, which isn't a given with a coronavirus, but if we're able to, it'll probably be one of the fastest turnarounds in history. So I would assume big pharmaceutical companies have to be part of that uh, grouping. Johnson & Johnson, I think, has been rather vocal. But I assume that we're going to need those folks to work out patent issues some other way, but really get this thing done. Yeah, I think the real issue is not so much the patents, uh, is more the infrastructure. So, you know, GSK, Sanofi, those big companies that make vaccines, they're the only place that can actually make this, no matter right. How brilliant an idea someone has, somebody has to do the the grunt work to make it. There's a, um, because this is existential in its impact, there's also a mental health aspect to this. What could we be doing and what are we doing to, to really find ways to give Canadians access to mental health? I think, again, what's this... Uh, uh, epidemic this pandemic is showing is sort of it's exposing again a lot of isolation right so all of a sudden we're all isolated but then we realize a lot of people are isolated all the time so again i think we're going to be forced to deal with this we're going to have to be uh, forced to deal with what what is the impact of being uh, touch starved you know we're all longing for a hug and, and i think it's going to make us realize the importance of that stuff that we take for granted a lot. I, I think all of us are going to, who have kids away at university, when they come home, they're going to get extra long hugs and they're going to hate it. But <laughs> we're going to realize how important this is. You know, in England, I think they have a sub-ministry of loneliness that they literally identified the crisis of loneliness in a, in a society that we've built. And it makes we me know wonder. That, we know that being isolated, being lonely, is the equivalent of your health of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. There's good mm-hmm. research on this. It's an area I've been fascinated about for a long time. And there really is an impact on your health of being isolated in society. And we know who's isolated, right? People who are old, people who are poor, uh, people with disabilities. The marginalized are doubly harmed by being isolated. I would add to that that there's a feeling of loneliness a lot of people have because their lives, in their opinion, is not their own. That they've been commuting to work for 25 years, a, a job that's questionable in terms of if somebody told me I didn't have to do this, I would say, I'm seeing you later. Um, so now people are working from home if they're working, but they also have a social safety net that they haven't had before. Like we're, we're very close to a, a universal basic income idea right now. Are, are we headed in that direction? Well, again, hopefully that's a, something that comes out of uh, a crisis like this, a realization that, yeah, 
this is actually what government is for. I think in the last couple of decades, we've become very almost hateful and dis, you know, uh, dismissive of the role of government. And I think we've realized, you know, even the most right-wing people in society are going to be dependent on the handouts from this nasty liberal government pretty soon. And I th- hopefully that'll change attitudes. Yeah, yeah. I keep thinking uh, there's no li- neoliberals in a foxhole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mind you, I'm sure they'll have a profit motive going at one point. Or I mean, it's so, uh, no one saw this as the game changer of our lives. There's been talk about climate change and what it's going to do to us. And yet nobody can feel the health impact of climate change. They don't understand it. Here, there's this thing you can't taste, touch or smell, but it could kill you. You know, it's kind of insidious. Yeah, but I, you know, I think that's very similar to climate change. It's something you can't, you don't see, but it's, it is killing us. You know, one of the, again, what's a, a positive consequence of this is we have the cleanest air that we've had in, you know, all our lifetimes. Uh, I remember I saw a story the other day about a village in India that saw the Himalayas for the first time in wow. 50 years, wow. not even a hundred kilometers away. And because all the factories are closed. So yeah, Beijing, the skies are blue. Do we have to uh, restart every airline that's now bankrupt? Should we bail them all out? I think we really have to ask ourselves that before just pouring money into into corporations. You know, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, uh, I think, help from the state should go to individuals, not to corporations. Well, it's interesting. In the 2008 situation, 2009, in America, the bailout was of the corporation. And in Canada, it was as well. But in, in some places like Germany, the bailout was the person. You bailed out the worker. You made sure that they could go home and that they'd come back to a job when the economy picked up again. So I think I'm seeing glimmers of that in what we're doing now. Uh, and I, it, I've, I guess my, my sadness is the people who are being most deeply affected here are the low-wage income earners who work in long-term care facilities and the elderly themselves who are so vulnerable because those low-wage workers partly have to keep finding different jobs in different places and they become the transmission of the disease. So I, 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 if you had a few recommendations coming out of this that you thought, no, no, seriously, this is the moment we can actually do this, what would they be? Well, I would say, uh, just building on what you said, that our, our newfound love for so-called uh, low-wage workers that translates into actually something concrete. The, you know, we've realized how essential our janitors are and our PSWs, uh, et cetera. Let's start uh, respecting them by paying them a decent living wage and benefits and full-time work instead of piecework. I think that's the biggest uh, change that com- could come out of this from an economic point of view. I think from a health point of view, the real thing that has to happen is a fundamental rethink of of how seniors live in our society and how we uh, support them in their in their golden years uh, from this health side practical side I think there are real questions about how, how does our health system operate you know for the first time in decades our hospitals are not operating at 110 percent capacity mm. about, our hospitals are emptier than they've been since the beginning of Medicare, 60, 70% 
capacity. But is that because elective surgeries have been canceled? In part, but some of it, I think, is a realization that maybe a lot of this stuff shouldn't be done in hospitals. Mm. So, you know, I've, we know that our system is way too hospital-centric. Again, we had a reminder here that we can, we can do with, uh, without some of it. So, why so nur- nurse practitioners and decentralized health clinics. Telemedicine is really having is Telemedicine. Wow, it's working. Well, we knew it would work, so let's just keep doing it. I, my fear is that we just go back to making our same old mistakes when this is over. Well, I guess sometimes I think that if, if this goes on long enough, it does start to really switch the way people think. It's like the Great Depression. It changed a generation that never could think about things like frugality in the same way that others who didn't have to experience that kind of deprivation did. So as you said, this could go on for a long time. And if it does, perhaps it'll de-link us from some of the habitual behaviors we've been engaged with when it comes to health. It's a possibility. Andre, I want to thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. All right. Take care of yourself. Andre Picard is the Globe and Mail's health reporter. Well, that's it for Plan B. I'm Ralph Benmergi. I hope that you found this informative and helpful. Uh, Plan B comes to you from Upstream. Upstream cares about the social determinants of health and how we can make sure that we get the things before they become problems. Uh, Upstream is at www.thinkupstream.net and uh, you can get in touch with them anytime you'd like. And this broadcast was also made possible through the auspices of the federal government of Canada. Take care of each other. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.